stopped, get him stopped. God and Moses both in a sidecar could not drive a sprint car with a thousand horsepower. I swear to God, he's done a double somersault backwards. My car will go past wide open. Uh, my 50,000 came in a Twinkie box. You know, I get my jollies off over looking at a nice car wash. You know he's going to crash your shit, but he's still, he's still got great stories. Oh, they disappeared. Oh, I'm leading. <laughs> I'm leading. <laughs> you plated your old ball sack and you just freaking let it eat. It's all goddamn assholes and elbows. And if you ain't right... They'll send your ass to the rear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fun episode of Open Red, the official podcast of the World of Outlaws, NOS, Energy Drink, Sprint Cars. My name is Rob Blount from Dirt Vision. Alongside of me, the PR god, of course, from the World of Outlaws, Nick Graziano. Nick. That was I've arrived. You have arrived, fresh from the last great Coliseum. How was your weekend up in Bristol, Tennessee? It was awesome. Yeah, it was anything and everything you wanted and hoped. It was cool to see. It was just nice to be back to a sprint car race in general. I hadn't hadn't been to a sprint car race since Volusia, so it was nice to- Really? Yeah. It had been that long? It had been that long. No way. Yeah. I hadn't got a chance to go to the other ones. I've been to some of the uh, late model events, but yeah, I haven't been to a sprint car race since Volusia. Did they just keep getting rained out or something? Because I feel like you told me at least three times, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be going to this one. How how did that end up being that long? Well, it would have been, like, I would have been going to Vegas, but obviously the whole West Coast swing sure. didn't happen, so that got uh, canceled. And then I don't think I had another one planned. Uh, maybe there was a rain out one or something, but yeah, it was just it was Bristol's the next one, and there might not be another two months till the next one. So I don't know; it's a weird year. Wow! But it was it was fun. Hey, if uh, it makes you feel any better, I haven't been to one since Kokomo last October. Oh yeah, that's and that that's was my, tough. That was my first one since World Finals 2019. Ooh, yeah, that's real tough. COVID was a COVID was a weird year. There was a few years before I was working here when I was doing literally 115 events a year. So to do literally one in 2020, that was a weird feeling. Yeah, I can bet because just just going back was so nice. It was nice to see all the uh, sprint car people, all the uh, our our team, and then uh, the drivers and uh, everybody. Nice to see all of them again, and just nice to see racing sprint cars racing on a racetrack again, especially Bristol. That yeah. was something I never thought I'd see. I thought it'd only be something we'd uh, see in the old clips and mm-hmm. play on a video game. Um, so watching a sprint car going around Bristol was just awesome, spectacular, especially the speeds that they were going speeds at and just were, how they were hanging on to it through Speeds were absolutely incredible. If you somehow had to miss this past weekend's Bristol Throwdown from Bristol, Tennessee, we have a new track record. Uh, it actually fell on Friday night in qualifying. David Gravel ended up setting the new track record on Friday with, I think, what was it, a 13.6 or something? Yeah, 13.6, I think it was. or something. Well, that ended up falling again on Sunday. Uh, and for, for what it's worth, just, just so everyone knows, the original track record was 20 years ago set by Sammy Swindell, and it was like a 13.8, 13, right? 13.860. Gravel ends up beating that by about uh, a Cup. tenth and a half. And then move forward to Sunday, and 17 cars 
broke David Gravel's track record. So now the new track record, as it stands, belongs to Sam Hafertit Jr. of Sunnyvale, Texas, with a whopping 13.326 second lap for an average speed of 142 0.098 miles per hour on a half mile oval. That's average. So average just, speed. So just think they've got to be hitting 160, close 170 going into each turn. You know, I don't know because it didn't look like they were losing that much speed in the corners. No. Like so, Gravel, a lot of the guys uh, said that like you go in and you would just stay full throttle, like and even barely move the steering wheel. If you're, if you're riding up top, just go in. Throttle down, hold the steering wheel, and see where it goes. So I wonder if the top end speed was actually much higher than what the average lap speed was. Oh, got to be. You think so? Oh, yeah. Because it, it really didn't look like they were losing that much corner speed. No, yeah, I, I, I would imagine they're probably entering at least maybe 20 miles an hour more hmm. than the average. I, I know. I, I mean, it wouldn't, it shouldn't shock me. I'm just saying it based off of, like, the naked eye it didn't look like they were losing that much speed in the corner, so you would think that the top end wouldn't be that much higher to, to level it out. But there is the story that Sammy tells of 20 years ago with the state trooper putting a yeah. radar gun in turn three, clocking him at, like, 168 or something in her in turn yeah. three, and that was 20 years ago. And obviously, again, now we've, by six, uh, six-tenths of a second, nope, half a second, I can do math, uh, shattered This is why we Sammy's speak laptop. and write and... Talk to people instead of I went of to school for journalism, not to yeah, do math. No. Okay? I was told there would be no math. Uh, when I was told I had to take a math class, I just got up and walked out. <laughs> and then I eventually came back and said, okay, what math class do I have to take? Anyway, I digress. So the equation here is me leaving. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I did that in high school. Uh, my first day of, of pre-calc class when I was a senior sat down and they passed out the textbooks and I looked at the equations that were on the cover of the textbook and I said, nope. And I got up, <laughs> handed the textbook back to the teacher and went to my guidance counselor and said, I need a new class. <laughs> I was like, this class isn't for me. That's why I went to school to write and do this sort of thing. Uh, anyway, that was a, a weird tangent that was neither here nor there. Back to Bristol because it was awesome. Not only was it fast, but the racing was actually quite yeah, good. Yeah, the racing was pretty entertaining. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, Gravel ran away with it the first night. And I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it but was. He ran away with it because he had the caution that reset everything. Because if that caution that's didn't right. come out, I was trying to, was I was trying to, race. I'm, I'm getting the two races mixed up. But yeah, you're right. There was the caution and. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Reitzel was coming there at Reitzel the end. Reitzel was coming. Sergeant. Oh man, if that ca- there wasn't that caution, I think that would have been one hell of a finish. Yeah, I think he would have got him because as as fast as Gravel was, it seemed like I don't remember who it was, but he got stuck behind a lot. Uh, I can't even say a lapped car. He never actually lapped him, but he just got stuck behind a a car at the back of the pack. Everyone was still so fast that. He just had trouble getting by him, and Reitzel was just charging on the oh, top yeah. side. And that was the cool part, too. Everyone kind of expected it was going to be a one-lane racetrack right around the middle of the track. It wasn't that way Friday. It certainly wasn't that way on Sunday. They actually, It looked like they wore the middle of the track down so much that you ended up having a, a new line on the bottom below the rubber and a new line up top above the rubber, and it made for some awesome two-lane racing. Yeah, it was really good. The big blocks put on a good show. The sprint cars put on a really good show. I think a lot of people saw something really fun. Um, hopefully, a lot of new people saw it too. Absolutely. We'll uh, we'll talk more about that later. But I'm I'm just 
I'm still blown away by by Sam Hafertieb's lap. That is a lap uh, that took some serious balls to be able to throw down. Big ones. Big ones. Probably some aerodynamic ones. They yeah, they, slip through the wind like that. You, you know, know? probably had to you know uh, trim it up a little bit beforehand, just kind of make it aerodynamic. Had to. Had to. Had to have used Manscaped uh, and their new performance package 3.0, which of course gives you. The lawnmower, uh, the weed whacker, the crop preserver, the crop reviver. You've heard us talk about all of this already. And, of course, if you use the promo code OPENRED20 at manscaped.com, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping. And did you know uh, that Manscaped, which, of course, is the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, uh, has partnered with, uh, where is it? I just lost it in my head. Uh, There it is. They've partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to spread awareness for men's health and early cancer detection. Together, TCS and Manscaped are committed to raising awareness for the most common form of cancer in men aged 15 to 35 and giving support for fighters, survivors, and families impacted by testicular cancer as part of their We Save Balls initiative. So while you're down there cleaning up your sack, why not go ahead and give them a little investigation for lumps, changes in size, or any pain? Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Manscaped recommends you check yourself once a month, and if you do feel any lumps or swelling, give your doctor a call. You definitely want to go ahead and do that uh, and catch it before it gets any worse. Take it from me, who's from someone who's been there. Make sure you catch it before it gets worse, uh, and make sure that while you're doing that, you're cleaning yourself up with Manscaped. Manscaped. So again, uh, that's open red 20 That's the promo code. Get yourself 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. That is promo code OPENRED20. Your balls will thank you. I mean, you know Sam Hafertieb had to use that code to get all this, to get that uh, quick time there. Had to. I mean, there's just no way around it, Mm -mm. right? Because when you're going that fast, you you can't have any sort of wind resistance. That would be drag. Exactly. He had no drag on Sunday. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nothing dragged him down. Imagine if Sam Smith could have had Manscaped. 20 years ago, just how fast he could have gone around there. What have been flying? <laughs> so, funny story, before all this, Sammy said, you know, I really hope our track record doesn't get broken, uh, which it did, but he got he was our grand marshal of the event, and he got to drive the pace truck. Looked like he had a, a, a lot of fun. A lot of fun driving truck. the pace truck. Maybe too much fun, at least the first night. I was riding in the backseat of the truck. He's going around, and all right, the call... We're four wide. Oh, right. You were in the pace truck with, with Sammy? Yeah. Okay. So In the backseat. I never knew until just now that that was a bucket list item for me, but I've just now figured it out that it is, and I'm extremely jealous of you. Yeah. Wait right. till this next part. Oh, boy. <laughs> so the cars, uh, we do the four wide, and you know after they make their one lap, the pace truck pulls away to give them room to get lined back up. So the call comes out, all right, pace truck, pull away from them. Sammy floors it puts the throttle to the firewall, and just launches the truck. I mean, we're going 80-plus into, I think it was turn one or something here. You can feel the thing just, like, plant down into the corner. Sammy's still hanging on to it, and we're going, like, whoa. <laughs> They're like, all right, Sammy, slow it down, slow it down. <laughs> I saw him tweet something about that, and it just, I'm like, man, that, that must have been awesome. And I know we had a... Uh... Our series photographer, Trent Gowers, was in the Yeah, he was, was in, in the, the back of the, of the truck. truck. I don't think he was ready for that. There is no way that that ride was comfortable <laughs> at that point in time in the bed of that truck. That is awesome. I am, I am jealous of everyone involved. I, 
I never realized that being a, taking a pace car ride with Sammy Swindell was on my bucket list until about two minutes ago. And yeah, now it is, and I'm very jealous of you and all involved who got to do that. Ah, uh, yeah, it, that's something I'll never forget. Now that's no, that's, that's, really stay, cool. that's staying up there. That is really cool. Um, what else was really cool this past weekend was I believe it was Friday. Uh, Nick here got to catch up with our series director for uh, an extensive chat that we've actually broken up into two parts. Um, you did this one completely on your own. I, I was here in the Dirt Vision studio. You you were up there in Bristol, so you and him got to, to sit down and have a conversation. What was that like, uh, and what are we about to hear? Because I actually haven't heard it yet. Yeah, it's it was a really cool, fun interview to sit down and talk with Carlton. If anybody has met Carlton or know Carlton, he knows he's just a really cool guy in general. Uh, he's been the series director for the World of Outlaw Sprint Cars for more than 20 years. Uh, Brian Carter, CEO of World of Outlaw, sat down. It's kind of like a fun little uh, just kind of three-way conversation uh, just talking about Carlton's career with the Outlaws. Uh, he's uh, I know we've been trying to get him on the show for a while. Finally, we broke him and got him on uh, just to share his story of how he got involved. Uh, a lot of people might not know his connection to Ted Johnson, which is pretty close. You'll find out. You'll might not know he was a police officer at one point before this job. Um, I know. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things that he dives into and talks about, shares some really fun stories, and um, uh, Brian Carter uh, had some uh, fun things to say, and uh, you can tell that he was having fun just talking with Carlton, too, asking him questions, uh, so it's definitely a really cool interview. It was really long. Like, we didn't even realize it was going to be that long. It came in with just a handful of questions, and then kind of how it goes when you have a good conversation, you know, more questions kind of spiral in, and just ended up being almost an hour-long conversation between the three of us. So that's kind of why we're splitting it up into uh, a couple of parts. Uh, don't have to digest the whole thing at once. Kind of can get fun uh, pieces of it here and there. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll just get into it. I mean, he had to have had some fun if you, if he was willing to sit down and then end up speaking with you for a, almost an hour, like you just said, on a race day, on w one of the biggest race days of our season this year. That At least he was having a good time for sure. That goes and shows it, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like Even when I was on the sprint tour for the couple of years, I talked to Carlton here and there, but we never really got a chance to kind of just sit down and talk like that. So it was cool to uh, get to know him more. Uh, that's awesome. I'm I'm excited to hear it. Let's throw us into it, Nick. All right. Here's Carlton Reamers and Brian Carter. And on today's episode of Open Red, we have our special guests, Carlton Reamers and Brian Carter. Obviously, Carlton Reamers, the series director of the World of Outlaws NOS Engineering Sprint Car Series, and Brian Carter, the CEO of World of Outlaws. Uh, thank you both for being on today. Uh, definitely a, a big pleasure to have both of you on together. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's an exciting day. We're sitting here underground in the center of Bristol Motor Speedway, so it's pretty exciting. Definitely. Now, Carlton, how long have you been with the World of Outlaws now? Since 92. 1992 is when I first started, so I guess that's been 29 years. Did you? Am I add, adding right? Did you two know each other beforehand, or where your first meeting was um, just, well, I guess, when was your first meeting together? Uh, you might could answer that better than I could, but but no, we did not know one another uh, back when I first started, because Brian wasn't involved with the series then, and we had never met until 
2005 when we started talking before you came back. 2005. Did that? Your phone's always ringing. You had a race car drivers wanting something? I'm sorry. You got race car drivers wanting something there? Oh, I would imagine so. <laughs> Let me get that thing turned off. Sorry. In 1992, how did you get started? I married into the business. I didn't know anything about racing. Still don't know a whole lot about it. <laughs> There'll be plenty of people that'll tell you I know very little about it. Uh, but no, I met a, a young lady in uh, my hometown, Wichita Falls, Texas, and just so happened her father was Ted Johnson. And anyway, Lisa and I got married. I was working as a police officer then and uh, got to the point where I could retire from the police department and went to work for Ted. Now, did you know, I guess you didn't know much about racing. Did you know of the World Outlaws at all? Was, how did, uh, how was Ted's reception of you, and how did you two kind of connect and kind of bring it to this point now? I did not know anything about the World Outlaws. Had actually never even heard of it. I knew a little bit about racing from just watching uh, in our hometown, uh, Lloyd Ruby's from Wichita Falls, Texas. So uh, we always watched, uh, you know, the Indy 500 and everything mm -hmm. to see how he did. And then Eddie Hill, a very famous drag racer, one of the fastest men alive. Uh, anyway, he, he's from Wichita Falls. So I knew a little bit about that kind of racing, but I didn't know anything about dirt track racing or the World Outlaws. And uh, actually, when my wife, Lisa, told me her father owned the organization, I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> But anyway, Ted, Ted and I hit it right off, you know, uh, like I said, married his daughter and, and, uh, I didn't immediately quit. I still worked for the police department for quite a number of years after I'd married Lisa. And then in, in 92, we made the change, big change for us. Cause we both had lived in Wichita Falls our whole life. And we moved down to the Metroplex area in Dallas and actually moved to a city down there, Allen, Texas. Uh, but at the time, the, World Outlaw offices were in Plano, Texas. Mm, okay. And so how did you, was it just uh, that connection with Ted that brought you obviously to the World of Outlaws and where, I guess, how did you build your interest and want to get involved with them yourself? Well, it was just, uh, like I said, I had worked at the police department and mm -hmm. had the opportunity to retire and uh, uh, start drawing a retirement and uh, after I'd gone to some races, Ted Ted really and truly just bugged me to death to come to where he needed some help. He really did. And to bring in a family member, I think, was uh, uh, desirable to him to have someone close that could come in and help him help run the organization. And and I think he's probably saw in me I have some good organizational skills and, and everything. And so it was just kind of a perfect fit. So we, we made the move. And it was at that time, a family-owned business, mm -hmm. you know, which is usually a good opportunity if you can get involved in a family-owned business, as long as you can get along with your family. <laughs> and uh, and we all did. Uh, we had our moments, no, no doubt, or whatever, but most time, Ted and I, I mean, he was the boss, you know, and I took orders from him, and we got along just fine and did it for a number of years. What did the organization look like in 1992? Was it Ted? And I know that Stacy was running stuff, and... That was a lot, lot smaller than it is today, especially. And I look back on it then. I, how in the world did we, did we do what we did with the limited number of people and resources that we had? Uh, obviously, there was Ted and Stacy, his wife. She kind of ran the merchandising end of things. 
but then and then and Lisa also worked uh, mm-hmm. for the organization. So there in the office, there were us four, and then Richard Day, who did the public relations. Uh, and then out on the road, we had a crew of like one, two, three, four, five, five people. That included even the merchant. We had two merchandise traders, and that included the two gals working the merchandise traders. So we really only had three officials out on the road. And we had no, I tease our guys now, they talk about how hard it is and everything. I said, well, we used to do this and we had no four wheelers to get around on. We had no golf carts. We walked everywhere <laughs> and, and everything. And it was a lot more physically demanding back then, I believe, with mm-hmm. that, that few people. And, and like I said, the limited resources that we had. But it grew quite a bit while I was there. We eventually did get a couple of four-wheelers and a little bit better equipment as we went along, but a lot smaller. than. And we did a great job even back then of running the races, uh, putting on the events or whatever, but we didn't offer near the fan experience that we, we do now. What was what, Brian, what year did you come in, and what was it like when you came in? So I came in the first, my first involvement was informal in the summer of 2004. And uh, most of the transactions with Ted had already occurred or mostly occurred. Actually, they weren't really completed until I got there. I joined the company in 2005. And at that point, the company really wasn't seeing eye to eye with Ted at the time. It kind of gotten ugly in the transition and all the rest. So it was one of the things I'm most proud of is actually kind of re- reestablishing the relationship mm-hmm. with Ted and with Carlton and, and understanding the importance of the heritage of the organization and bringing that back because it was such an important part of the personality and an important part of the legacy of a world of outlaws. So I uh, actually was able to br- bring that with Jason and I and Ted in the room and bringing back all of the elements that were so important to the establishment and the growth of the world of outlaws from 1978 to that point. So that, that really, I think was the turning point for the reestablishment of the brand and the rebuilding of the credibility within the marketplace. It had kind of been hurt since Ted had sold it to the time I joined the company. Brian's being very modest. He, uh, <laughs> if uh, his involvement when he came on board and got involved with the World Outlaws and and recognizing that he that he needed Ted, just to put it quite frankly, to come in and and, and steady things and and get uh, things back where they should be with the promoters and the tracks and the racers and everything. But if Brian hadn't had that foresight, they, I'm not saying they wouldn't have gotten there, but it would have been a lot harder. Because Ted, uh, even though he was uh, kind of moving on, you know, into retirement and everything, he, he still carried a lot of weight in the sprint car world, mm-hmm. with uh, especially with the promoters and the racers. And uh, but Brian being able to recognize that, hey, we need Ted Johnson back in here, uh, help the world outlaws get to where it is today. Yeah, it was uh, nobody could work both flip phones as fast as Ted could <laughs> uh, between getting the yeah. East Coast and the West Coast and getting uh, the pageants and the Lawtons and the and uh, uh, all of the people that we needed to get involved to, to reestablish the organization there in some darker times, kind of candidly. In the, and uh, Ted was really foundational in doing that. And I got a chance to really spend some time and get to know Ted there before he passed and uh, and 
reestablish some friendships and 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 carry them forward for him uh, those last couple of months while he was out on the road with us, really meeting with the promoters. And I hope and I believe enjoying himself, uh, see what was going to come from the World of Outlaws that, that, yeah. Yeah. at that time. I've often said people about Ted that Ted was in 1978 when he World Outlaws mm -hmm. first started. Ted was the right right man in the right place at the right time. And he had the right personality and everything uh, to get an organization like the World Outlaws going and get it off the ground. And then in 2005, Brian was the right man at the right time and the right place for it to continue on. What What did Ted teach you? What lessons did you take from him for once you got into this position? Wow, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, often even tell people today when we still hire people there there's not a uh, a manual on uh, hey here's your job and here's a manual that tells you how to do it it's kind of like learning on the job training is you just had to get out there and do it um, the biggest thing i learned from ted was uh dealing with people and dealing with the racers and racers are not normal people <laughs> and I say that affectionately, and you know, but I've come to love them over my 29 years or whatever. Uh, but but they are a special breed of folks, and boy, there's a lot to respect about them. I mean, they're they're very independent and they're hard headed, and when they get to racing, it's them against the world. And I think you have to recognize some of that to be able to deal uh, with them on an individual basis mm -hmm. and everything. I was quite shocked. That, first when I went to work that, you know, man, I was getting yelled at a lot and I wasn't used to that. I was used to when people were yelling at me, I could do something about it. But when I went to work for Ted, it was, you get yelled at and you just kind of go, okay. <laughs> but I found out real quick, like uh, you could get yelled at by Steve Kinzer mm -hmm. on a Friday night and, and he had some very colorful language and everything. And then Saturday was over and, and that, and that's kind of unique. A lot of times when you have a bad instance with someone, you know, it can become something that carries on. And these racers don't do that. And, and it took me a while to figure that out and see that. And it's, it's really a remarkable thing that human beings can be at one another's face. And then the next day they're buddies again, you know. And, uh, but that's one of the unique things about racing. And I don't think it's just the world outlaws, but other forms of racing also. And it is rather unique, and I think some people sometimes outside of the business don't they don't see that or they don't understand that. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you mentioned a couple of times uh, you're a police officer. How where did that path come from? How did you end up there? How did I end up being a police yeah. officer? Well, I had a job, uh, it wasn't paying very well, and something came over the radio one day that they were hiring people. And so I just went down and applied. I'd really never thought about being a police officer. But then I kind of looked back, as we all do, we reflect back on our younger years. And I thought, you know what, I I really kind of, I think I was a pretty good police officer. I'll put it that way. And I think growing up with my upbringing with my mom and dad and everything, we're excellent, great people. And I think I kind of had a foundation that was good for police work. And when I did get in the police department, I kind of found my calling. I loved police work, and I'd love it today. I'm too old to do it anymore. But uh, it was hard for me to leave. It was hard for me to leave it because uh, I really 
have a lot of respect for the police department and law and order type stuff. And, and but I just really and truly heard an advertisement on the radio and went and applied and got accepted. <laughs> it must have been kind of hard up at the time. I don't know, but I got hard. So here's your badge. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, did anything you learned from that, did that help you when you got into this role? I know you said, like, you used to being yelled at and doing something about it. Then kind of, was that just, were you, did you that not bother you when you, things like that when you got into this role? Oh, I think. There's a little transition mm -hmm. there, you know. A uh, police officer has to deal with people. Right. He has to deal with uh, uh, tense situations. Uh, he has to be able to be an arbitrator between, you know, people that are having a difference of opinion. And uh, so I, I certainly think there's some things that, that carry over or similar between the, the, the two types of uh, jobs there. But uh, uh Beyond that, I really can't think of much else. But, but uh, I didn't didn't get to carry my gun anymore. It was the only only <laughs> thing there. A few times I thought maybe I needed one or whatever. <laughs> but no, no, I'm I'm just kidding on that, of course. But uh, no drivers. You feel like uh, oh, my brother was like just arrested. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. You know, the only difference was I didn't have my radio where I could call for backup. You know, I was kind of on my own out there in the pit area. Uh, but, but no, there, there are similarities between the two jobs. Yeah. I, I see Carlton in the high stress situations and, uh, there's a level, uh, there's a, there's a level of calmness that he brings, I think from that a long time use of dealing with high stress situations that I think a police officer brings a different perspective to it. And you see it at the racetrack and you can understand the background when you watch it happen because we have a lot of high stress situations. I've been pinned in the back of Steve's hauler. Not many as many times as you have, but I've been back there too. And and you gotta, it's a you've got to calmly think your path out of there when he cuts you off in the back of Steve's holler. And we we laugh about that stuff now with Steve, but uh, it is a high stress, high pressure. And I can see where that calm over oversight look uh, overview of it uh, definitely is an asset uh, for all those years as a police officer. So, is there any moment that sticks out in particular that you think just that calm moment worked for you and you kind of helped you work out whatever issues as driver was going through or maybe something you've seen Carlton deal with too. Well, I hate to keep talking about Steve Kinzer because I love, <laughs> I love Steve Kinzer and I love the Kinzer family, but I guess my, my 15 seconds of fame or whatever they call that came at Kings Royal Eldora one year when Steve was rather upset with me and, and he was really letting me have it. And of course the TV cameras were capturing it all. And uh, I just remember looking into those uh, intense blue eyes of Steve, and I was telling myself, just don't move. Don't make any <laughs> sudden movements. <laughs> Let him go. And he did and everything. And the next day we were fine with one another. But uh, uh, that's about the only one that really sticks out in my mind. Are there any moments in that early period from uh, 92 to 2004 that you sort of see as pivotal, like like real milestone moments that you got to experience as an official of the World of Outlaws. That you that I, I I'm I was involved. I got to see it when I was growing up in Texas uh, back in the '70s and '80s. But then I kind of took a hiatus from it and really didn't get back involved. And like you said, the right place at the right time in the early 2000s. But there's a lot of history that happened there. A lot of watershed moments. Is anything in that early time that that stands out to you that you were just really proud to be a part of or 
Yeah, I guess probably the most significant. There, there are certain small things along each and every year, but uh, uh, when we took TNN on as a media partner and uh, started doing some uh, live TV shows uh, on TNN, for those of y'all that remember the TNN days mm -hmm. back when they did racing and everything, and they were our media partner. They were great people to work with, great people to work with. And, and we did some groundbreaking things back then, you know, trying to put those shows on live, right. which was uh, extremely diff difficult when you're doing segment racing and everything. But we had a great relationship with them. And, and so I think getting the, the shows on live TV was a pretty significant thing at the time. Yeah, that we uh, was we were able to get all that old TNN and the Diamond P video, and we actually have all have possession of every video that we know now that exists of the World of Outlaws at our office there in Concord, so that we can incorporate it when it's time. Did you ever see a day where you thought that uh, the World of Outlaws was going to be on live TV distribution every race, every every lap uh, at the time? Because I know those early early live shows, and even the shows we did with. ESPN and speed back in the day live in the early 2000s those are tough yeah absolutely and no I never envisioned what what we see now on internet broadcast mm -hmm. I just uh, uh, not much into you know uh, the internet and all that stuff when it came first came on board and all that I thought it was kind of a passing fancy or whatever so I was way off the mark you know and uh, but it's incredible now that all of our shows a person can buy their dirt vision package and watch them and we get comments all the time and especially folks who just can't make it to the races anymore oh my gosh that's all they want to do is talk about dirt vision you know? mm -hmm. and and then it feeds there they love the sport and now they get to participate in the sport more than more than they ever have but but no to answer your question i never envisioned us being where we're at today So you'll be able to hear the second half of that conversation with uh, Carlton uh, next week. Like like we said before, it was a pretty long chat that he and Nick had, so we wanted to just break it up, make it a, uh, a little bit easier to digest. But fun conversation so far, Nick. Yeah, it's really cool. It really, really interesting. Um, just uh, just another one of those fun, just hang out, kind of get to learn more about someone kind of thing. I think a lot of people don't know much about Carlton, so I think it's cool just uh, he was willing to share some of the stuff, and you'll hear even more the next episode. I've worked here literally two years, and I know legitimately nothing about him before listening to this interview. I think that was uh, kind of a common theme about a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, uh, you know, he's he's very you know he's outgoing and fun to be around but he's also uh reserved for quiet at times too uh kind of kept a lot of that to himself but uh we finally we finally broke him a little bit and he uh had some fun talking about it i think so far yeah and like i said it was really cool that he was willing to sit down with you for so long on a on a race day on a really big race day and uh you know kind of switching gears a little bit and getting back to Talking about that big race day, of course, it was night one of the Bristol Throwdown at Bristol Motor Speedway Friday night. Uh, super fun show, to be honest with you. I thought the the track raced a lot better than a lot of people expected. Uh, you had David Gravel, clean sweep, got out the brooms. Maybe they'll put that on the banner. That'd be cool. You know, the the 
Actually, you you haven't been to Bristol with the banner up, have you? No. So, where they closed off some of the seats up in turns three and four, right underneath the the suite overhang mm-hmm. and the press box and stuff, they put up this really large banner that went all the way along the the length of that corner of those two corners. And all of the moments that you see in the tunnel when you're walking through the turn three pedestrian right. tunnel on the wall are on that banner. They call it like the great moments in Bristol history. Oh, so wow. it's like uh, Dale Earnhardt and Terry Labonte's clash in, in 1999, Tony Stewart throwing the helmet in 2012 at Matt Kenseth, um, Kyle Busch's triple sweep from the first time he did it in, I want to say, 2010. Uh, just a lot of stuff like that. Bruton Smith buys the racetrack. Uh, be kind of cool if David Gravel's clean sweep of Bristol Throwdown could end up there. Quick I think time, it's worthy. I agree. Quick time uh, in qualifying. At the time, it was a new track record. Wins his heat race. Wins the dash to set on sit on the pole. I said that like a southerner there. Sit on the pole. Sit on the pole. <laughs> uh, to sit on the pole and then uh, goes out and wins his feature, but not without a little bit of a challenge. Sam Haferteep Jr. got the lead actually right on the initial start, and it took about two or three laps for David to uh, pass him back. And then, like we said earlier, if that caution didn't come out, I think Aaron Reitzel was going to get was him. on the move. He was he coming was in flying. a hurry. And it was a struggle of a week, too, for them. Oh, uh, man. They got great finishes, podiumed both nights, but... A motor a day, pretty much. I think it was practice night they blew one, Friday night they blew one, and then Sunday uh, they blew one again. It just... I mean, they got it down pretty good. It was in and out pretty quick, I'd say, but, man, that's just... Good thing they can get some good finishes out of it. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, make a little bit of the money yeah. back. My goodness, because that's an expensive week. That and just for morale boost. I mean, if you had blew three motors and had bad finishes, that's just not the way you want to leave a big event like that, so... Uh, yeah, good good run for the, the Rookie of the Year contender. Yeah, uh, we'll run you through our top ten here. David Gravel got the win, as we said. Aaron Reitzel second, as we also said. Charged all the way up from ninth. So on a track that a lot of people thought going into it wasn't going to have a ton of passing. Ninth to second wasn't a bad run there uh, for Aaron Reitzel. Carson Macedo rounded out the podium. Sam Haferteep Jr. dropped from second to fourth. Donnie Schatz rounded out the top five. Kyle Larson finished in sixth in what ended up being the only night that Kyle Larson was able to participate at Bristol uh, due to the rain out and his prior commitments to the NASCAR Cup Series having to run Sunday at Talladega. I don't know how that turned out. He probably should have just stayed. Probably should have just stayed. Yes, he should have. Uh, seventh place, Gio Selzy. Eighth place was our points leader, Brad Sweet. Ninth, Paul McMahon. And tenth, the one of our other Rookie of the Year contenders, Brock Zierfoss, rounding out the top ten. Uh, following this race, following Friday night's race, Brad Sweet still had the point lead by 82 points over David Gravel. Sheldon Hodgenshield, 98 points back. Carson Macedo was fourth, 100 points back. Aaron Reitzel was fifth, 102 points back. And that was how it looked following Friday night. So as we said, Saturday, a lot of rain came through, uh, similar to how it did NASCAR weekend, similar to how it did late, late model, model weekend yep. for the Bristol Bash. I, literally, you look at it, I think every single event that Bristol tried to hold on the dirt was impacted by rain in some way, shape, or form. But that'll happen in the mountains of northeast Tennessee in the springtime. So, Saturday's program, the finale of the Bristol Throwdown, moved ahead to Sunday afternoon. And to be honest with you, for a day race, it was a really good track, and the racing was really good. Yeah, it was our second day race of the year we had the first one at volusia and uh, the, that one was fun too this one mm-hmm. yeah still still put on a pretty good show 
They ran, uh, you know, as you would expect them to in the heat race and the dash pretty much right through the middle of the corners. And, and I think uh, by not doing a ton of track prep, that slicked off pretty well and they ended up having to go below or above it. And it gave us a two-lane racetrack uh, on Sunday afternoon that they used to put on a show. Um, yeah, they kind of found this nice formula of kind of letting the track wear out through practice, qualifying, uh Heat races, dash, and they did some track work here and there to it, but they allowed it to kind of wear a little bit and widen out a little bit. It made it perfect for the future for the sprint cars and the super dirt car series. I agree. Both shows were really good. Uh, heartbreak of the day has to go to Logan Shuhart. Oh, uh, led laps 1 through 23 in a 25-lap race. Where does he finish? 19th. Yeah, it sounded like they had some kind of mechanical issue. Uh, with the motor, which uh, I know Logan, I think, believe on Twitter said, uh, you know, he hate to say because uh, I believe uh, Newman Engines builds them some pretty fast engines. If we've seen uh, him fly yep. through the field like at Knoxville and things I, like I that, I believe like a either a family friend or a family member yeah. of them too yeah. as well, uh, located in Central PA. But every now and then, there's something out of your control that happens, and unfortunately, it just happened to him. Uh, that's definitely a big heartbreak. Listen, if there was a place that was going to do it, it was going to be Bristol with the speeds that they were turning as we. Saw three different times with Aaron Reitzel, too. So, uh, but unfortunately, literally a, a lap and a half from the finishes, or, or two and a half laps from the finishes, when it ended up happening to Logan Schuhart, David Gravel got by him coming out of turn four, I believe it was, took the lead. And then the following corner coming out of turn two was when uh, Logan slowed. They had they had a good battle before that. They though. really did. It was a yeah. ton of fun, and 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 you know, Logan uh, pulled the shots was coming in yeah. too on that one, making it a three car battle as they were fighting through traffic. I mean, yeah, you fun. could throw a blanket over those three. I mean, uh, Logan got caught in traffic, made a few mistakes here and there. Uh, Gravel found the bottom. Donnie was following him through, and it was yeah, like you said, it was all three of them right there. Um, they put on a pretty good battle towards the end. For a day that gave us a qualifying speed of 142.098 miles per hour, uh, you wouldn't have expected the track to race as good as it did being that fast. But it, it really did put on a, a really great race. Uh, caution ends up coming out, of course, for Logan slowing. And David Gravel ends up holding off Donnie Shots to take the win, sweeping the weekend. It wasn't a clean sweep on Sunday. But it's still a clean sweep of the Bristol Throwdown uh, for David Gravel. Twenty-five thousand dollars on Sunday, ten thousand on Friday night, thirty-five thousand dollars on a weekend. That's not too bad. I'll take it. I would. I would gladly take it. I'll, I'll. I mean, David, if it's not good enough for you, I'll take it. But yeah, I mean, we'll split it. Nick and I will. Yeah, I'm fine with that still too. I mean, he's right? well, he's he's got a bunch of wins. I mean, uh, I think Friday night was his 60th career win, so he's racked yep. up. He's racked up some change. So win 60 and 61 with the World of Outlaws for David Gravel. Uh, as we look through the the top 10, as I said, Donnie Schatz finished second. Aaron Reitzel, uh, second podium of the weekend, finished in third. Gio Selzy, fourth. Paul McMahon, fifth. Carson Macedo in sixth. Brock Zierfoss with a seventh place run. Spencer run. Baston in eighth. James McFadden, ninth. And Corey Eliason rounded out the top 10. A name that I did not mention there. You'll find him in the 11th spot. Points leader, Brad Sweet. Uh, with David winning both nights, Brad Sweet finishing 11th on Sunday, the gap is now down to just 60 points. Um, as strong as Brad Sweet's been throughout the start of the season, Bristol kind of made him look human. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, it was kind of surprising not see him fighting for the win both nights. Uh, but I mean, if you just, I mean, it's kind of it's, it's kind of funny to say like, oh, it, it makes him 
trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to. I just kind of had a brain fart there about <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, like it, we're, the way we're talking about it, it's like, oh man, it's kind of devastating for him. But if you look at it as a whole, like his average finish this year is still like a fourth. Yeah. And that was only his second time out of the top ten this year. His worst finish has been eleventh. So it's it's funny how to him that's so it seems so devastating, but yet it's still he still has such a great record. It goes to show you just how competitive this series is. When his average finish is still somewhere around a four, as you said, his worst finish is is this Sunday uh, with an eleventh. And he lost. Uh, let me try to do the math here. As we know, isn't my strong suit. He lost twenty two points. Uh, to David Gravel. So Gravel now 60 points back. Carson Macedo gained eight points on him. He is third, 90 points back. Sheldon Hoddenshield is fourth, 104 points back. Aaron Reitzel is now fifth, 106 points out. Logan Schuhart is sixth, 150 points out. Donnie Schatz is seventh, 160 points back. Craig Kinzer eighth, 260 back. Brock Zierfoss is ninth, 314 markers back, and Gio Selzy rounds out the top 10 in points, 392 points back. As we now head to the quarter mile, we go from the fast, high-banked half mile of the last great Coliseum to a small quarter mile, one of the smallest tracks we go to in Jacksonville Speedway in Jacksonville, Illinois, this Thursday night. That's going to be a super fun show. Cannot wait for it. Every time we run there, it's super fun. But before we turn our attention to that one of the things that we mentioned there is donnie shots seventh in points 160 points back uh kyle mcfadden of speed sport asked him on sunday in the post-race press conference uh a, an interesting question and donnie gave a really interesting answer and i'm i'm just gonna leave it at that because we're gonna play you the audio clip here and we'll talk about it right afterwards so here is donnie shots in the media center, uh, answering a question from Kyle McFadden of Speedsport. You feel like you're overcompensating, like in the car to make up for. That's what I do for a like living. That, or... Is overcompensate. That's what I'm supposed to do when things aren't right. You're supposed to go make it work. You're supposed to go win races. You're supposed to get, to, you know, get top five finishes, top ten finishes, and race for championships. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, some days I don't do the best job of it, but. Um, some days you're just the victim of circumstance. Um, you know, there's racetracks where uh, I'm going to roll in the gate knowing that uh, I'm going to be fighting for a top 10 at best. And um, that's just reality. You know, it's just the way I race. I'm not uh, uh, going to be unrealistic about it. You know, when we go to Hopstock, there's a fat chance I'm going to win a race, let alone run near the front. So um, it's just it's, it's what I'm supposed to do is is compensate and sometimes overcompensate. Really uh, interesting answer there from him, I think. For sure. I think it shows, um, I guess you could say, the struggles they've been having with the development of the Ford engine. Obviously, it's been performing well. They've had good finishes. It's just um, sometimes it's just not performing to the level they want it to yet. I'm still just trying to work out some of those bugs, which you do when you're developing a new engine, really. Um, I think I, I, I know... I guess for myself, I would even say if I was in a situation, I'd probably be frustrated just knowing that, you know, you're on this run of champions, championships, wins, wins, wins. Now uh, you're kind of the guinea pig for something new, something really cool, but mm-hmm. yet it's you're still your development phase. So you kind of got to go through some of those development pains and work through those. And kind of like he's saying, it's sometimes he's got to kind of overcompensate for what's not working yet. I mean, 
we we both have heard him speak enough to know that there's definitely frustration in that answer, uh, frustration in his voice there. But at the same time, it was it's really interesting to hear someone who has had multiple seasons where he's won nearly 30 races, mm-hmm. uh, close to a third of a schedule that has 90 plus races on it. Right. So he, we're, we've been used to him just dominating full seasons, but knowing that there are places where he doesn't go in with the mindset of, I am going for the win tonight. He goes in with the mindset of, I want a top 10 top five at best would be great. And that's, Part of what makes a 10-time champion, right, is is knowing how to temper his expectations and get the most out of what he can possibly get from his car without going over that line right. and, and causing himself to crash. Yeah, while he says he may overcompensate, he, know, he knows where that line is, that fine line is, not to overdo it. And, not over-overcompensate. Yeah, exactly, and take a car that you can at least get a solid finish and wreck it by trying to make your way into a place you're just not going to get to. I think this weekend is is something to build on for them because uh, we've been seeing durability issues so far, right, with, with the, the development of this mm-hmm. new Ford engine for them. Uh, I believe it was an, an ignition issue at Volusia uh, during a day show there. So that wasn't engine-related, but we've seen other times so far throughout this year where it's looking like he's cruising on his way to his 300th win finally. And then something mechanical happens. Maybe it isn't with the Ford engine directly, but there maybe maybe this is just me purely speculating. But maybe they're spending so much time on the development of this, they're missing something else, and that's causing a reliability issue somewhere else. Whereas normally, if they were able to do what they were normally able to do pre-development of the the Ford engine, they would have been able to cash that. Or maybe it's just something breaking. It could be as simple as that. That happens in racing. That's one of the one of the variables that this sport has that most other sports don't have is you have so many mechanical pieces that unfortunately sometimes they just break. But All right, this is this is uh this is uh new to Ford again. So they're kind of seeing what finding out what works and what doesn't work. Why didn't that work when we thought it should work? And I know last year they had uh, a foundry closed, so like it took almost a whole year just to get parts that they needed for it. So because of COVID, they may still be facing some of those issues mm-hmm. too, and may not still have all the parts that they really need and want for it. So mm-hmm. um, it's just uh, kind of said, kind of going through growing pains with it, but yet still. Still it shows. It shows. Well, right? Yeah, it shows just how good uh, Donnie is. I mean, you know, he's still two couple top five finishes, a podium. Uh, you know, it was his first uh, top five and six races, first top ten and five races. Um, so when but, you hear that, this is something to build off of. Exactly. Them. It's a it's yeah. a momentum builder, knowing that, like we said before, they've had reliability issues. Now you go to this big, fast half mile that gave other people, again, look at Aaron Reitzel, three engines in one weekend that they went through. It gave other people reliability issues. They they get through this weekend with, as you said, two top fives and a podium. This is something to build off of and now be able to look to the future and hopefully end this slump that he's in and be able to finally get that 300th win and probably more. Because right. I think once he gets the 300th, once we see the 15 back in victory lane, it's just going to open the doors up. I'm going to bet he's probably sick of hearing about 300. <laughs> I think so. I th- yeah, I think he'll, whether he'll admit it, I think he'll be happy to get it and get it over with and kind of move on from that and then just kind of yes. f- keep focusing on everything else. 
Yeah, um, knowing the way he is, I think now at this point, with as long as it's taken to get win three hundred, uh, it's just going to be more of a, a relief at this point than it's than it's going to be almost an accomplishment, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Uh, Jacksonville, will it happen? Maybe not. It's kind of like a hop style, like you said. Maybe just going to try to get a good finish there. Um, although I've seen him run well there. Uh, but uh, I-70 Motorsports Park that we're going to, brand new track, kind of a clean slate for everybody. So you never know. Uh, could pull it off there, too. Yeah. Uh, man, my schedule just went out the window. I don't know what happened. I had it loaded up, and hey, there it is. So, yeah, this weekend, as we said, Thursday, April 29th, Jacksonville Speedway. Friday, April 30th, and Saturday, May 1st, is the FVP Platinum Battery Showdown. Doubleheader at I-70 Motorsports Park in Odessa, Missouri. And then after that, a place that Donnie knows the the, the route to Victory Lane oh so well. A doubleheader for Hashtag Let's Race 2 at Eldora Speedway, Friday, May 7th, and Saturday, May 8th. If there's any place in my mind where I can realistically see Donnie ending this slump, it would be Eldora Speedway. I'm going to have to say him and the team probably have that one circled pretty big. Yes, they, I agree. They've got the big red Sharpie and it just went over probably 15 times in a circle over that one. I, I 100% agree. Uh, Nick, you got a, a, a notebook full of blue pen notes. What else you got? There? I was just looking at some things. I was curious how if, because he's on... Uh, start the season. 15 races. We're so far uh, no wins. Just curious how when the last time that's even happened for him. And actually, he went on a 15 race winless streak in 2011. Uh, then got that six the on the 16th race of the year. Got it at Attica. Finished second in points that year. So still hopes for a really good year. This by no means does this mean anything bad uh future so, for donnie again that just goes to show how strong donnie shots has yeah. been for so long that you had to go back 2011 a full decade to find out the last time he went 15 races without a win to start off a season and then prior to that it was 2002 he actually went 48 races without a win <laughs> so next next week i turn 29 and the that year, I turned 10. So you had to go back that far <laughs> to find that stat. Again, this just, so, just yeah, shows, shows the level exactly. of dominance that, of course, you're gonna, there's a level of dominance when you are a 10-time champion with 299 wins. But it just goes to show the level of dominance that he has had for such a, a prolonged stretch of time now. Yeah, it's crazy just to think. How good! Just being that good at something for that long and that consistent. I mean, look at other sports. I mean, I guess you could kind of think of guys like uh, Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, but even then, I think if you really compare stats, Donnie's, I think, still just a little bit more impressive. Maybe we're biased, but uh, there's probably part of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's fair to admit. But I mean, I look in motorsports, right? Just sticking with with that realm. Back. Uh, let's go, I'll just pick a, a number, let's say seven years before. Again, I I, I grew up on Long Island, New York, uh, the closest dirt track to myself and my family when I was growing up was three hours away in upstate New York, uh, the Orange County Fair Speedway in Middletown that I think the Outlaws have only ever gone to like three times. Uh, it actually was the site of my first Outlaw race oh, yeah? back in 2012, um, but for me, following the Outlaws was extremely difficult because they never came any, any, anywhere close. So I, I knew that it existed, 
and the extent of my knowledge beyond it knowing that it existed was Donnie Schatz was winning. You had Steve Kinzer for so long, but again, at my age, his dominance was already coming to an end, and the, everything had transitioned towards right. towards Donnie. So for me, Donnie Schatz, when I would watch like Wind Tunnel with Dave Despain or something, Donnie Schatz was right there with Michael Schumacher with his level of dominance. That was the way it looked. It looked for oh, me, yeah. and, and and even parlaying that into now, Lewis Hamilton's dominance of Formula One to me was what Donnie Schatz was three, four years ago. And and I think uh, it's still there. It's just the development of the, the Ford engine, which is going to pay some massive dividends once it's complete, is just hampering things a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure uh, not putting him on a pace that he will would like i'm sure he would have continued like to continued his uh close to 20 something wins streak and staying uh top two win points and things like that but uh i i think we're, we're definitely going to see them back there uh if not this year uh i think pretty soon i don't think by any means we're going to see i don't think donnie's fallen off yet yeah listen like you said we're only 15 races into this thing there's plenty more to go donnie and that team they know what they're doing they can erase a 160 point gap and it and make it close again i think yeah, I, even I going think off that right there yeah like that really like you said 160 point gap this early in the season is really nothing we got seven yeah. guys within that range right now that this is going to be a pretty fun championship battle in, in general yeah i agree they just all need that 49 car to start having more weekends like he did this week i think they want to go back to bristol now <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately nope we're going to Jacksonville instead this Thursday. I can't wait. Uh, really fun track. Really fun track. As we always say, it's live on Dirt Vision. And by the way, this isn't the only Jacksonville race that's live on Dirt Vision. Unfortunately, they got rained out this this past Friday night uh, for what would have been their weekly season opener. But every weekly race from Jacksonville Speedway on Friday nights when they run, you can catch it live on Dirt Vision as long as you get your Fast Pass. So. Uh, you can even really see cool. uh, midget races there as well. Yeah, Absolutely. midgets on dirt vision. I think that's going to be like a three. I think it's a, a three race Sunday series. Yes, if I remember. Right. Yeah, so three different really Sundays cool. throughout the year. There will even be some midgets on dirt vision, which is fantastic. We all love our midgets in the, in the, in uh, this department, uh, and cannot wait to see some midget racing from that little bull ring. I'm sure that puts on a heck of a show oh yeah i got to see them they they were paired with uh the outlaw once um yeah it was 2019 when we went and it was just really fun to watch them they put on a really great show there qualifying there for the sprint card is really fun too. oh so much fun if you get if you don't have time to watch everything at least try and get watch qualifying that's going to be entertainment in itself qualifying at bristol was fun this weekend but it was a different fun exactly that that was to see how fast everyone could go that was more yeah different fun this is just elbows up racing with one car on the racetrack. It's fantastic. Can't wait. Cannot wait. And then it'll be fun to see um, how I-70 does uh, the next couple days after it. Going to a new place. That'll be fun. Yep. Friday and Saturday night. Looking forward to those as well. Again, every single race for the World of Outlaws and Austin Energy Drink Sprint Cars. Every single race for the World of Outlaws Morton Buildings Late Models. This year, every single race for the Super Dirt Car Series Big Block, bu- big block Modifieds. I don't know how I tripped myself up there, but I did, and I'm really disappointed. Um, you should know better. I should know better. But every single race for the Beasts of the Northeast, as Shane Andrews calls them, will be live on Dirt Vision as well, plus the Dirt Car Summer Nationals, which is coming up in uh, a month and a half, I think. Very soon. Yeah. June. 
that's going to be fun. You'll get to hear the golden tones of Ruben Morales calling the action from the booth. Uh, our pit reporter for the World of Outlaws, Morton Building's Late Models. He'll be up in the booth instead for the Late Models and Modifieds of the Dirt Car Summer Nationals Tour. That's always great. And so much more coming through the rest of the year. Weekly racing still to come from not just Jacksonville, but another new track as well. South Dakota's Houston Speedway on Sundays. And that's just adding on to our normal slate from Attica Raceway Park, Williams Grove Speedway, and Knoxville Raceway, which, again, had another great night of, of racing. That's two great nights of weekly racing in a row for Knoxville to start off their season. Um and thank you to the guys that I picked here uh, in our little in dirt vision gambling session that we had on Saturday. Won me some money, so thank you guys. Knoxville was a ton of fun for me. There you go. Fifteen bucks richer. We only <laughs> bet the biggest and and throw down the hardest here at Dirt Vision. So you're buying lunch today? Uh, no, I think that I think lunch is on someone else today. Actually. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, which we. Kind of have to have to get to. Oh uh, yeah, so. I guess we just got the clock, the the, the that uh, wrist pat thing. There. Yeah, so oh, it nope. is time to wrap it up. Uh, if you can get to Jacksonville or I seventy or Eldora, you should get your tickets at worldofoutlaws.com. If you can't, like I said, get your Dirt Vision Fast Pass uh, and make sure you can at least be tuned in. Uh, Nick Bristol is in the in the rear window now. It is behind us. We left it in our dust. That red dust. And uh, still moving on. A lot more excitement to come. A lot of great racing to come. If you like, if you enjoyed Bristol, I'll just wait until you see the rest of the season. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back with part two with uh, the World of Outlaws NOS Energy Drink Series Series Director Carlton next week. Bye bye. Hashtag open red.